Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1320. La plus se change. This is being recorded on February 14th of the year 2024. Uh, the title of the program comes from um, old French saying, the plus ça change, the plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more they're the same. Or the more it changes, the more it's the same. This is sort of a strange program. Uh, most of it is going to consist of a talk that was recorded on the evening of September 19th or September 20th, the morning of September 20th of 2001. I was speaking via telephone hookup on the late Roy of Hollywood, a.k.a. Roy Tuckman's program on KPFK in Los Angeles, and this talk was just a little over a week after the September 11th attacks. It is worth noting not only because of the analysis of September 11th, this just over a week before the attack, just over a week after the attacks, but also uh, from how how things were going in the Middle East at that time, and uh, how we can jump forward to the present. Uh, this talk. Uh, there is some audio distortion, so I want to alert listeners to that. Uh, however, I think this program will be, uh, in a way, enlightening. I hope it will be. Uh, most of it, again, is a talk that was recorded via telephone hookup on KPFK in Los Angeles just past midnight on September 20th of 2001, what most people would call September 19th. And again, it will feature some commentary by yours truly. And at the end, uh, Roy of Hollywood, or Roy Puckman, uh, has some interesting observations, and I think uh, those will be relevant to what is going on today. Uh, very quickly, uh, the latest flash drive is available. Uh, current as of, for the record, 1310 has all of the work that I've done on COVID on it, plus a mini library of old anti-fascist books. It basically uh, is everything on the SpitfireList.com website and contains the vast bulk of my both printed and recorded slash audio work uh, for the better part of half a century. Also, the brilliant comments that are posted by Terra Fractal, our brilliant contributing editor, and also some by other listeners as well. Uh, there also was a podcast that Sister Station WFNU is making. Of the, oh, by the way, with regard to the uh, flat drive, it is available for a nominal tax-deductible fee. I get no money whatsoever from that, which again could be seen as proof positive that my worst critics' uh, assertions uh, that I am nuts are perhaps uh, well-founded. In any event, also, there is another link at the top of each food, written food, uh, each 
for the record description and each food for thought post that will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that were being made by Sister Station WFMU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume for the record, Sister Station WFMU is doing just that. And please do be aware of the comments that were made by our brilliant contributing editor, Terra Fractal. They are a major source of information in and of themselves. I also want to alert listeners to the uh, most recent Food for Thought post, which has updated information about the progress of the programs. So here is a program, and again, there is distortion in this file, uh, but this is a, a telephone hookup broadcast that I did after midnight uh, with the late Roy of Hollywood, uh, or Roy Puckman, on sister station KPFK-FM. I've discussed the Bush-Bin Laden connection at considerable length in the past. Uh, the maneuvering of William, uh, not William, but uh, Robert Mueller into the head position at the FBI. He was a he held a key prosecutorial position in uh, Bush's Justice Department. That's Bush one, George the first. He was less than vigorous and vigorous in his uh, investigations of. Uh, among other things, the bombing of Pan Am 103, the BCCI case, and the prosecution of Manuel Noriega, all three of which would have gone to the Iran-Contra affair and also to the elder George Bush. Uh, the BCCI affair might have gone forward in time through James R. Bath to tar the younger Bush as well. And I speculated last week, and this is in programming that, that you'll be getting uh, before much longer, Roy, I speculated about the possibility of putting an insider in uh, the position of directing the FBI prior to uh, this event being allowed to go forward. Uh, I also noted that J.H. Uh, Hatfield, who was the author of the book that documented the Bush-Bin Laden connection, and who also alleged in that book uh, that George Bush, the, that the younger George Bush, had been arrested for cocaine possession, uh, he died of an alleged drug overdose at the age of 43, about two weeks after Mueller succeeded to his position as head of the FBI. Uh, it turns out that Carl Rove, who was sort of the one of the most formidable operatives of the Bush White House and uh, a reputation as sort of a, a dirty trickster and a, and a Machiavellian operative, an extremely formidable individual, not a name one hears a lot about, but he's arguably Bush's most important aide. And uh, he was one of the main sources for J.H. Hatfield's book. I had uh, speculated that perhaps the information uh, about Bush, Bin Laden, BCCI, Bath connection, and also the allegations of uh, a drug arrest had been channeled to someone who could then be discredited because of his background, and that uh, inclined other journalists to not look at the story. Bear in mind that George Bush at a press conference that set the younger George Bush in 1974 uh, stated that uh, not not a press conference in 74, a press conference in 99 stated that he had not used cocaine since 1974, but the press did not follow that up. Uh, I wonder about the death of J.H. Hatfield, and I wonder about the the maneuvering of Robert Mueller into the head position at the FBI. And what I wonder, and again, this is a question I'm asking, is I wonder whether perhaps that was uh, in anticipation of this event. 
Uh, I also noted last week that uh, the fellow who was one of the most vigorous counter-terrorist experts for the FBI had been encountering a number of different uh, frustrations uh, in his investigations, both of the bombings in East Africa in 1998, attributed to bin Laden, and of the bombing of the USS Cole, attributed to bin Laden. He had been, uh, for a while, denied access to Yemen by Barbara Bodine, who was the U.S. ambassador to Yemen, and uh, that frustrated his investigation. I also noted that uh, John O'Neill, in addition to heading up the... And I read this on the air last week, in addition to heading up the... Uh, investigation of the bombings in East Africa and the bombing of the coal was in charge of national security for the New York office of the FBI. And I'm going to reread a section of an article that uh, appeared in, the, in both the New York Times, the New York Times story, and the San Francisco Chronicle of Sunday, August 19th of 2001. The article was by David Johnston of the New York Times. It's headlined by the Chronicle, FBI terror expert lost track of top secret papers. And uh, the, the expert here is one John O'Neill. And it says here, skipping down, officials identified one document in the briefcase. This was a briefcase that was stolen in the summer of 2000 when John O'Neill was in Tampa. Officials identified one document in the briefcase as a draft of the annual field office report for national security operations in New York. The closely guarded report contained a description of every counter-espionage and counter-terrorism program in New York and detailed the manpower for each operation. And I speculated about the possibility of the FBI being uh, destabilized and uh, subverted, basically, from a hands-on counterintelligence uh, standpoint. I wonder whether perhaps uh, the, a, an investigation of, of bin Laden links and perhaps uh, an uncovering of the bin Laden-Bush connection uh, might have been, or a possible uncovering of that connection, might have been one of the goals of whoever took that briefcase. Because certainly it would appear, since nothing was taken or destroyed, that uh, gaining counterintelligence information would have been the, the primary motive for the theft of that uh, briefcase that has been under investigation. Uh, official spokespersons have said that they didn't think anything was taken because they didn't find any fingerprints. But any any skilled intelligence operative, or even a, a skilled street criminal, if it was just a random thief, would have been using latex gloves or some other device for knots in order to preclude the possibility of leaving fingerprints. There's a grim footnote to the story of John O'Neill and the speculation I engaged in last week. Uh, the San Jose Mercury News from Sunday, September 16th of 2001, had another New York Times story. This one by Judith Miller, Benjamin Weiser, and Ralph Blumenthal. The Mercury headlined this, Bin Laden's organization highly organized and coherent. And there's a discussion about, uh, there's a quote of an FBI official in 1997 talking about uh, Islamic fundamentalist groups attempting to strike at the United States. And uh, then it goes on to comment. It said, the official who made those comments, John P. O'Neill, who oversaw the FBI's investigation into bin Laden, retired last month to become director of security for the World Trade Center. After the first plane rammed the Trade Center last week, he called a close friend to say that he was on the street and was all right. He has not been heard from since. 
there's speculation that he may have been killed, uh, that he may have run into uh, the world, he won't run back into the World Trade Center after the first plane struck, and that he may have been killed. He has not been heard from. Uh, this is uh, a story I just downloaded off uh, from, from my email. This is an AP story, and it's actually, it was carried in uh, USA Today online. And uh, this is from, let me find the date on this. This is from, uh, actually, this is very, very recent. This is September 20th of 2001. FBI terrorist expert likely killed in New York attack. It's by Pat Milton of the AP. During three decades with the FBI, John O'Neill became the go-to guy when it came to fighting terrorism. Now it appears he'd lost his life at the hands of the people he worked to defeat. Two weeks ago, the 50-year-old O'Neill retired from his job as the head of the FBI's National Security Division in New York to become director of security for the World Trade Center. Friends and family believe he was in his 34th floor office in the North Tower Tuesday when the first plane hijacked by terrorists crashed into the upper floors. Within minutes, O'Neill was outside on the sidewalk calling a close friend and his son from his cell phone to assure them he was safe. He then called FBI headquarters before re-entering one of the towers to assist in the evacuation. He was apparently inside when the building collapsed. So I, I wonder about the compromising of John O'Neill. I think a, 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 a simplistic analysis might be that he was an architect of something like this. I would not necessarily make such a claim. It may very well be that, that his investigation into uh, the... Uh, Bin Laden's situation, it uncovered sensitive information, and that, 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 again, I wonder about the theft of that briefcase detailing every counterintelligence and counterterrorist operation in New York. Uh, it is certainly a, a, an interesting and grim coincidence that he then became director of security for the World Trade Center. He now, apparently, is dead. So, uh, that, again, is something I have more questions than about, about than answers. I would also note that uh, among the many evidentiary tributaries, there are a number of major tributaries running in the direction of Germany, and I've speculated about what I call uh, the Underground Reich as a possible executive authority of uh, an event like this. It's, it's literally a state, as I've, I've said before on your show, Roy, this is going to sound to be sound like utter madness for the uninitiated. Uh, it's something that most people don't know exists, and that was that was the idea. And it, it is it is literally an underground state, yet it does not have a geographical locus in the way that most people would think of a state as having a geographical focal point. Uh, it certainly controls the dominant power elements in Germany, yet it's not German. It controls very powerful elements in the United States. Yet it is not American. It controls very significant elements in the Middle East and the land in Latin America. Yet it is neither neither Middle Eastern nor Latin American. It, it could be thought of as sort of a super mafia network with enormous economic power at its disposal and also its own intelligence service, which grew out of the uh, intelligence outfit put together by Heinrich Mueller, the chief of the Gestapo, and using the uh, SS networks at the end of World War II uh, that's heavily overlapped the intelligence services of other countries, including, in all probability, uh, East Bloc intelligence services. And uh, yet it, it itself had no direct national interest. Heinrich Mueller, who was the focal point of uh, 
a half-hour show, Roy, that specifically for the record 283 that we talked about. Uh, it actually that you presented in, in our last fundraising marathon. Uh, is the, well, Heinrich Mueller was the director of this organization, and uh, although he is now either dead or so old that uh, he'd be about the same age as Strom Thurmond, 100, give or take a couple of years, uh, his organization is undoubtedly still in place with tributaries running in, and, and uh, influence in the Middle East, in Germany, in the U.S., Latin America, and around the world, yet not being associated with a geographical state in the way that we usually think of it. Uh, I think that, that considering the possibility, and I believe this to be a fact, of a fifth column within our intelligence service, within our political infrastructure, within our economic infrastructure, uh, something that is present in a, in a very powerful and significant way in American affairs, and yet uh, not American in the way that most people would consider it. It's something that is in a position to wield a decisive influence in this country, and yet it is opposed to what uh, most Americans, including most relatively conservative, America, conservative Americans, would uh, believe in or advocate. So I think one of, the, one of the elements that I would offer up for the audience's consideration is that what the United States is actually experiencing is uh, a subversion from within, very much like the fifth column, which subverted France prior to World War II. Many of the French uh, power elite were very sympathetic to fascism because they saw fascism as the answer to uh, the threat of communism and socialism and labor unrest in their own country. This was the appeal of fascism for many of the world's power elites. Uh, in turn, many of the relationships that developed prior to and during World War II and that were then extended in the Cold War period uh, due to a common anti-Soviet or anti-communist bond, those relationships themselves uh, have not only developed over the years but have in many ways turned into what, the, what intelligence officers refer to as blowback, although I have no doubt that elements among those elites uh, are overtly fascist and uh, believed in the values espoused by Adolf Hitler. I think many of them were simply uh, inclined in that direction out of an anti-communist and anti-labor stance, and uh, not necessarily doctrinaire fascists. Yet, when one becomes involved with forces like that, uh, there's a blackmail factor that can often be exerted. When you've been involved uh, in collaboration with either, say, Nazi industrialists, pre-World War II or World War II period, or with the uh, Nazi intelligence operatives, say the, the, the Galen outfit, uh, finally becoming the BND, something which overlaps Germany, something which overlaps the United States, something which uh, was very closely affiliated with the Mueller outfit, and yet something uh, which was really not uh, German in the way that most people would consider uh, a German intelligence service to be functioning. The BND grew out of Hitler's intelligence service and was the official intelligence service of Germany, yet it would not be something that an awful lot of Germans would have anything to do with because it retained much of its fascist character. And I believe that there's an element like that uh, at work in a sub-rosa fashion. Uh, I think that, that the, the sort of simplistic analyses, for example, that came out about Oklahoma City, well, there was, there was the, one, the one camp was, well, it was Timothy McVeigh and T Terry Nichols, two low nuts. 
the other camp was, well, it was it was the government that did it, and I don't think that uh, either either analysis was accurate. I think that there were elements within the government uh, that that knew about it, and that in turn those uh, elements were compromised by other elements within the government which uh, sought to embarrass the government and which basically uh, wanted to not only damage the reputation of the United States, but to damage the reputation of the FBI. Bill Clinton, the ATF, and to do as much damage to Americans as they possibly could. Literally, operatives of an underground Reich involving elements in the Middle East, uh, networking with Nazi and white supremacist elements in this country, among others, and with some very strong corridors running up into uh, the channels of government power, but not necessarily government power uh, exercised uh, in the way that most people think of it. I think that there's something similar at work here in all probability. I believe that there is a fifth column. People have asked me, well, do you think this was really Bin Laden? I don't know. Uh, all I know is what I read in the papers. It would appear from the available evidence that uh, Bin Laden's forces were involved. There may have been a, a sort of a terrorist consortium involved in this. But as was the case uh, in the late 70s and early 80s when the, the terrorist bet noir that we were all alerted to and uh, supposedly mobilized against was uh, Mohammed Gaddafi. Well, yes, Gaddafi uh, had a terrorist cadre, but his intelligence service was put together by Heinrich Mueller's Gestapo veterans working for the Bormann Group, and much of his terrorist cadre and his terrorist expertise was put together by the Triple Wilson operation, which had very, very strong connections to our own intelligence system. It was not a couple of rogue, quote, ex unquote, CIA agents, two of the people involved in the Turple Wilson operations on behalf of Gaddafi were uh, Theodore Shackley and uh, Thomas Klein, the numbers one and two men, respectively, in the CIA's covert operations directorate. George Bush was direct, the elder George Bush was director of the CIA at the time that the Turple Wilson operation was undertaken. So they, it's not that Gaddafi did not run terrorist operations. He did. It wasn't that he was sincere, was not sincerely anti-American. He was. But the, the Qaddafi phenomenon was a much larger phenomenon and a much more complex phenomenon than we were told at the time. Of course, Qaddafi, as well as the uh, Iranian uh, militants who held the hostages from the U.S. Embassy, was sort of the two focal points of terrorism uh, in the early 1980s, at least as it was represented to the American people in a journalistic way. And uh, so to do to combat, you know, the, uh, the terrorist menace, Gaddafi, as well as the Iranians, and, uh, of course, Saddam Hussein, then Vice President George Bush, the former CIA director, put together the Vice President's Task Force on Combating Terrorism. When the recommendations from that task force came out, they recommended the creation of intergovernmental agency networks to be coordinated in the attack against terrorism. Well, that was those networks were literally they literally coalesced into George Bush's private intelligence service, and they were used by George Bush in the 1980s in order to affect not only the Iran Contra machinations in which the very Iranian fundamentalists that we were told we were opposed to and that we had to mobilize against were being armed by uh, the very networks that were supposed to be fighting terrorism. Those same networks were channeling East Bloc weapons to the Contras, utilizing the services of Manzarel Kassar, 
terrorists on the scene who was being used by these same networks to channel arms to, uh, among others, the Iranians, as well as getting East Bloc weapons for the Contras. Uh, it also turned out that these and these intergovernmental agency networks that were, again, supposed to fight terrorism and under the direction of George Bush, the elder, were also used for channeling the weapons that uh, were used by Saddam Hussein in the Iran-Iraq War and later the Gulf War. Saddam Hussein also being one of the major outlaw, uh, supposedly the head of a rogue state, and a terrorist bet noir that we had to mobilize against, etc., etc., he, too, was armed through these very same networks, and uh, George Bush was running that operation as well. So in terms of analyzing bin Laden, uh, I, I suspect that bin Laden's forces were involved. I think the, the, the bulk of evidence points in that direction. But in analyzing bin Laden as a, a political creature, uh, I think that, that there is much more required than what most people are bringing to the journalistic or analytical table at this point. Uh, some elements have pointed out, some people have pointed out, that, that bin Laden's genesis was with the CIA, as a warrior, that is, in uh, the Mujahideen movement. There are some strong evidentiary tributaries uh, between the Iran-Contra affair and the CIA support efforts uh, on behalf of the Mujahideen an author named Cooley, writing in a book called Unholy Wars, uh, has discussed connections between the Bin Laden family and Adnan Khashoggi, the Saudi weapons dealer who was one of the main operatives in the Iran-Contra affair. And uh, there are a number of other uh, elements of a commonality between the Iran-Contra affair and the Mujahideen support affair, uh, the Mujahideen support effort, I should say, which basically was the, the genesis of uh, Osama bin Laden as a warrior. That's where he got his military and guerrilla training. So I think in terms of analyzing bin Laden, one wants to avoid simplistic analysis, either saying, well, gee, this wasn't bin Laden, this was just, you know, this is those bad old American imperialists. I've, I've been really disgusted at some of the knee-jerk anti-Americanism and, uh, just frankly, ludicrous uh, statements on the part of a lot of elements in the so-called progressive sector. I guess you know when you when you haven't spent your time studying the facts, then uh, cliches and ideologized rhetoric will uh, suffice in lieu of uh, facts and and serious uh, effort. But I do not. I won't name names, but I've. Uh, tuned into both on the internet and uh, on the radio some of the, the so-called progressive uh, discussions in this regard. And, and there, I find the progressive sector's analysis of this event to be as completely inadequate as the mainstream media who already have us going to war and the, the whole George W. Cowboy thing about wanted, dead, or alive. Uh, this is not the Old West. I do think some form of military operation simply to neutralize the operatives is necessary, but this is a much more complex state of affairs. And if my working hypothesis about the underground Reich is correct, and obviously I believe it is, then uh, ultimately I think you're going to find that elements within the Middle East, probably including Osama bin Laden and the uh, Wahhabi sect in Saudi Arabia, which controls the oil wealth, and which has a, an historical relationship going back to uh, the Third Reich, 
uh, you'll find that uh, elements as seemingly disparate as Bin Laden and the Saudi uh, oil wealth and also the Bush family have a common political and economic history. And that well, the common political and economic history goes back to the Third Reich in its overground phase and the Borman organization in its underground manifestation. Uh, it's late night, and this is, this is uh, things have quieted down now, so it's a, this is a much easier atmosphere now to, to work in. This is, sort of, this is sort of a a rambling analysis. There's a lot more that's uh, uh, going to be coming down the pipe. I'd like to, to share a couple of other articles with regard to some of the intelligence failure in connection with this event, Roy. There's was a very interesting column, and bear in mind my discussion of a fifth column, my discussion of what I believe is a subversion of the FBI and a subversion of elements of U.S. intelligence by other elements uh, within U.S. intelligence, but not necessarily operating on an agenda that any American would recognize. This is a column that appeared in the San Jose Mercury News of Friday, September 14th of 2001. This is a William Sapphire column. The William Sapphire is the conservative columnist for the New York Times. And this one will sound very interesting, uh, I think, to, to veteran listeners. Is there a terrorist mole in the White House? Quote, Air Force One is next. And uh, listen carefully to the following, skipping down. A threatening message received by the Secret Service was relayed to the agents with the president that, quote, Air Force One is next, unquote. According to the high official, American code words were used showing a knowledge of procedures that made the threat credible. I have a second on-the-record source about that. Carl Rove, the president's senior advisor, tells me, quote, When the president said, I don't want some tin-horned terrorist keep me out of, keeping me out of Washington, unquote, the Secret Service informed him that the threat contained language that was evidence that the terrorists had knowledge of his procedures and whereabouts skipping down. The most worrisome aspect of these revelations has to do with the credibility of the Air Force One is next message. It is described clearly as a threat, not a friendly warning, but if so, why would the terrorists send the message? More to the point, how did they get the code word information and transponder know-how that established their malafides? That knowledge of code words, presidential whereabouts, and possession of secret procedures indicates that the terrorists may have a mole in the White House. That, or informants of the Secret Service, FBI, FAA, or CIA. If so, the first thing our war on terror needs is an efficient counter-spy. Well, obviously, I, I cannot comment directly on the accuracy of the allegations presented here by William Sapphire, but if, in fact, there's any substance this. Uh, and he's a, he's a conservative columnist himself, and the New York Times is fairly conservative from a methodological standpoint. If there's anything to this, it is very, very interesting, raises more questions than it answers. But in light of some of the other discussion that uh, I've had concerning the Bush-Bin Laden connection in the past, Roy, in light of some of the things that I discussed last week, uh, and in light of uh, what I've discussed, hopefully cogently this evening, or at least up to a point, uh, this speculation by William Sapphire, is there a terrorist mole in the White House, becomes very, very interesting indeed. Indeed, I think that the possibly late John O'Neill 
is someone who might very well have been victimized by some of those that fifth column forces or mole-like forces, uh, perhaps not, not in a fashion altogether dissimilar from the way that Lee Harvey Oswald was manipulated. Oswald was a U.S. intelligence operative who was maneuvered into a position where he could then be uh, fingered as the patsy for Kennedy's assassination, and of course he was eliminated before he could defend himself. I don't know whether John P. O'Neill is still alive or not, but I think the compromising of his investigation into the coal, and in particular that chilling theft of the suitcase, detailing among everything, among other things, uh, every counterintelligence and counterterrorism uh, operation in New York City, including manpower allegations, is something that very, very much needs to be looked into, and that he would then be director of security for the World Trade Center. Uh, and quite possibly a casualty, as it appears at this point, in the, uh, the explosion is something to think about. He, he might, one could think of him perhaps as John P. Oswald under the circumstances. Again, I think that a simplistic analysis of this event is a very logical thing. First of all, we, we don't get the journalistic analysis and the political science that we really require. And uh, certainly it's a very troubling event, and uh, people are going to be inclined to respond emotionally. So I think that uh, uh, analyzing this thing completely and analyzing it in terms of deep political history and in terms of intelligence methodology is really essential because the uh, the analysis to date has just, just not been adequate. It's been very simplistic indeed. One of the most interesting things that's come out so far about the investigation uh, involves some possible manipulation of the stock market. Uh, there have been a, there are a number of different capital markets that are being investigated. One of them, of course, the New York Stock Exchange, the uh, Deutsche Börse, the German uh, Stock Exchange, and also the Chicago Board of Trade are being investigated uh, with regard to an, to determining whether or not party or parties were involved in the deliberate manipulation of the investment markets in anticipation of this event. Now, this is very interesting in light of uh, something that happened with regard to the Kennedy assassination. There is a book called Were We Controlled, authored by a man named Lincoln Lawrence. That's actually a, uh, a nom de plume for a journalist who was investigating the Kennedy assassination. And the book, Were We Controlled, discusses the hypothesis that a, a group of uh, powerful international criminals of German-Argentine background and of explicitly fascist mentality had not only put uh, Jack Ruby and Lee Harvey Oswald under mind control, but also a commodities uh, trader named Tino DeAngelis, and that these elements had deliberately manipulated the commodities market in order to produce a collapse of the commodities market, which in turn drove the stock market way down on the morning of November 22, 1963, in conjunction with the assassination of President Kennedy, it produced a huge, huge, just a precipitous drop in the market, and uh, analysts estimate that the criminals, by selling short, made a half billion dollars off of the assassination of President Kennedy, and that's a whole lot more money, that was a whole lot more money than a half billion dollars would be today. That's B as in billion, $500 million, and that's a nice chunk of change today. Uh, in the book, Were We Controlled, 
the available evidence. And that, that's a, a book that I presented at considerable length on your show, oh, maybe three or four years ago, Roy. And it was a longer show. It was, it was not a, just an hour segment, but one of the longer longer shows that uh, I've recorded for you. Uh, in light of some of my speculation about uh, what I call the Underground Reich, or perhaps in a formal sense, the Borman Group being the executive authority behind this, uh, and with an investigation now into the manipulation of the stock market, uh, perhaps, again, perhaps in a fashion analogous in certain respects to what happened with the assassination of President Kennedy, I think that's an hypothesis that needs to be uh, investigated uh, more fully than it's likely to be. Uh, one of the many stories about the manipulation of the capital markets, the front page of yesterday's Chronicle, that's the San Francisco Chronicle of Tuesday, September 18th of 2001, has an article by Christian Bertelson of the Chronicle staff. It's headlined, Airline Stock Deals Under U.S. Probe, and it reads in part, In the days leading up to terrorist attacks on America, unknown investors made unusually large bets in the financial markets against the stocks of two companies that would come to be prominently associated with the disaster, United Airlines and American Airlines. That trading in United and other securities is the focus of investigations in several countries, including the United States and Germany, sources say. I think that that's one of the most significant elements in this investigation. I'm already seeing signs that it's, it's going to be downplayed, that they're going to go, well, that's silly, you know, that uh, we'd know who these people were. Well, they might know what the companies were, but that does not necessarily mean they're going to suddenly start fingering some of these entities as Borman companies. Certainly, I think one could say uh, very safely that uh, the Borman organization is just not something you hear a whole lot about. It doesn't receive a lot of journalistic uh, coverage. You know, at the Super Bowl, halftime of the Super Bowl last year, Roy, you didn't see the Borman, you didn't see the band spelling out Borman, question mark, on the field. It's just, uh, it's not something you hear a whole lot about. I had uh, an experience, Roy, in uh, one of the stations I work at in Northern California. I was playing a tape where I was talking about the Borman organization. I got a call, and uh, a person said, you know, Dave, I've been listening to you for years, and I, I generally find your material very credible, but the, the, the statement you made tonight is just too off the wall, and I have to challenge it. You know, where do you see any connection between the Church of Latter-day Saints and the underground Reich? I mean, that's just absurd. And uh, so I really, what, you, what I had said was, I said the, the remarkable and deadly Borman organization, the uh, economic and political component of a Third Reich on underground, he thought I'd said the remarkable and deadly Mormon organization, you know, the, the economic component of a Third Reich on underground. It was sort of like uh, sort of like Saturday Night Live, you know, with the old Emily Latella routine. Never mind. Yep, exactly. It was, it was a real, real funny uh, on-air moment. But uh, those, those are a few of the investigative elements that I think uh, deserve a lot more scrutiny than I think they're likely to get. I also think that there's some political aspects to this that uh, need to be discussed. On the one hand, I think that it's very important for people not to play into the anti-Americanism that certain elements on the left are presenting. I, I, was, I was just really disgusted hearing some of the stuff that I've, I've heard. I mean, a lot of it was absurd, but it was frankly 
way out of line in, in light of uh, what has taken place. This is not to say that, that, that at the same time that you know the, the cowboy Texas Ranger nonsense that we've been getting from George W. is, uh, is, is any better, but there's sort of two extremes, and one wants to avoid both of them. Uh, I, I do think that the, the perpetrators of this act need to be dealt with, and I, did, I do think a limited military response, albeit uh, a judicious one, and one that should be conducted with very good intelligence, and, probably, and, and rather than a large military operation, small units, or perhaps even covert operations, something the public would not necessarily ever hear about would be the way to deal with it. That, on the other hand, would have no political coinage. Uh, it's not going to do much for George Bush's polls if things happen quietly and out of the uh, sight of the television cameras. Certainly a large-scale military operation uh, and a visible one uh, would be a very much more uh, politically advantageous way of dealing with this. Uh, however, if a lot of casualties are created, that's just going to spawn many more... Uh, it's going to spawn new generations of terrorists. I would note, however, that on the one hand, we're being told that we have to unite behind George Bush. Well, I think it's important to unite behind America and behind the American people, not blindly or jingoistically in, or chauvinistically in any of those cases, but intelligently and in a mature fashion. Uh, at the same time, uh, George Bush did not get elected president of the United States, uh, regardless of all the horrible things in his background, and there is no shortage of those. Uh, if the man had been elected, that would give him a certain amount of legitimacy, but the fact of the matter is he just did not get elected. So supporting a man who is simply an illegitimate uh, pretender to his office is just not something I think is consistent with the real patriotism. Uh... I would also note, though, on the one hand, we're saying that there's a lot of cry to unite behind the president. At the same time, as there are a lot of elements associated with Bush that have been utilizing this uh, event in a highly partisan fashion. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Bush himself has, has used this uh, occasion to push uh, even harder for his missile defense shield. That would not have any that that would not in any way protect the United States. In fact, if anything, this event has uh, highlighted the folly of this, this particular missile defense shield. I also think that uh, one should consider the fact that Project HARP, which has been operational for some time, has, as its uh, stated, the stated uh, applications of its technology, missile defense, but not trying to swat an army of uh, mosquitoes with an arsenal of fly swatters but rather using electromagnetic means to create a field which would neutralize incoming missiles. It's a very different state of affairs. I suspect that the missile defense shield is simply uh, a political tool which would channel billions and billions of aerospace dollars to Southern California and perhaps remake California into a political constituency that would be favorable to George Bush. It will be interesting to see whether the sentiment in New York State uh, after this event uh, pushes New York into the Republican column. I do not know that that's going to happen, but it'll be interesting to see what the electoral results are in New York, considering that California and New York were the two big states that uh, stood in George Bush's way. Uh, both of those were carried by Al Gore. I would also note, of course, that two of the conservative uh, Christian allies of George Bush, uh, Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell weighed in to say that they felt that this act uh, 
was due to the fact that God no longer protected America because of the uh, the abortionists and the gays and the lesbians and pagans and the ACLU, which is just a wild analysis. I think it's also uh, indicative of a mentality which really is, is uh, only six degrees of separation from that of the Islamic fundamentalists who, who so much hate the United States. And one should never mistake some of the militant uh, Islamists who uh, are at the forefront of the journalistic coverage for uh, mainstream Muslims. Uh, they are not uh, in the mainstream Muslim tradition any more, frankly, than Jerry Falwell and uh, Pat Robertson speak for most Christians. But nonetheless, I would note that basically the take that was taken by Falwell and Robertson, Falwell has since apologized, was basically that America is the great Satan, and that our corruption and our uh, iniquity has brought us low. It's really not that much different from uh, the way that, say, Osama bin Laden or uh, similar elements would view the United States. One of the most serious things is the uh, battle cry. This was sounded by Jim Baker. Uh, the elder George Bush's Secretary of State and the man who led the crunching of the Florida vote in the electoral coup of 2000, and also the elder George Bush himself weighed in saying that uh, the restrictions placed upon the intelligence community by, that's right, Bill Clinton, are responsible for this. So basically the elder George Bush and Jim Baker are blaming this on Bill Clinton, which I think is Perhaps predictable, but but frankly outrageous. And uh, one of the things to take note of from a political standpoint is that while we're told, well, we got all got to unite behind George W., the forces around George W. are using this event as a partisan political cudgel in order to basically uh, eliminate criticism of George W. and also to uh, to get people to align uh, behind some intelligence some alterations in intelligence methodology that are unlikely to be uh, productive. In fact, one of the things we're being told is, well, we need to be able to use unsavory informants within terrorist organizations uh, to combat terrorism. It was precisely, precisely the development of those kinds of relationships that led to the abuses of Iran-Contra, that led to the formation of these interagency governmental networks that became George Bush's private intelligence service, supposedly to combat terrorism, but in fact, he used it to help arm uh, the Iranian terrorists that we were told we had the war fight against, and Saddam Hussein, and utilizing Manzar al-Qasar, of all people, one of the most notorious terrorists on Earth. It also, according to people familiar with the facts concerning the Pan Am 103 bombing, it also led to a uh, less than vigorous investigation of Pan Am 103 because one of the people apparently involved in that was Manzar al-Qasar. And a uh, military intelligence team that died on the bombing of Pan Am 103 had apparently come across the relationship between the Iran-Contra players and the aforementioned Manzar al-Qasar. And a full investigation of the Pan Am 103 case would have undoubtedly uncovered these unsavory relationships between some of the so-called counter-terrorist forces and some of the very terrorists they're supposed to be working against. So a repeat of, of a very, very bad uh, element of the past is something that's being called for by, among others, George Bush, who, who should know. The elder George Bush oversaw the development of many of these relationships. Uh, I also want to 
note for listeners that one of the major evidentiary tributaries in uh, this investigation runs through Germany. Many of the alleged hijackers appear to have been based in Germany, and then many of them went from Germany to South Florida, which is interesting. That's where Jeb Bush holds forth. Uh, there are a number of German evidentiary tributaries in many of the key terrorist incidents of the last 10 years. Pan Am 103, uh, one of the, some of the major evidentiary tributaries run through Germany. One of the people involved in the cell that was apparently involved with the bombing was a guy named Marwan Kresat, who was working for German intelligence and who was subsequently released uh, without being fully questioned. The funding for the first World Trade Center bombing, which apparently involved some operatives of the Bin Laden network, that funding came from Germany. There are also some strong uh, evidentiary tributaries running between the World Trade Center bombing and the Oklahoma City bombing, and those, interestingly enough, run through the Philippines. There was a fellow named Edwin Angelis, a Philippine national, who was prepared to testify that he saw someone who very much resembled Terry Nichols associating in the Philippines with Ramzi Youssef. Ramzi Youssef is a bin Laden associate and the mastermind of the World Trade Center bombing. Uh, Edwin Angelis was not, however, permitted to testify at, uh, I forgot what it was, the McVeigh, I think it was the McVeigh's trial, which uh, Angelis was going to testify at. He was not allowed to testify. Uh, there was an arrest in the Philippines, which has not had a lot of coverage. Uh, U.S. and Philippine authorities uh, made some sort of arrest. They had a lot of publicity on CNN. I have seen very little in print about that. Uh, one wonders about the Philippine connection uh, in light of some of the evidentiary tributaries running through Germany. Uh, of course, the Oklahoma City bombing involved Andreas Strassmeyer whose father was Helmut Kohl's chief of staff. Uh, so the, certainly the, the, an, an ATF informant fingered Andreas Strassmeyer as the mastermind of the Oklahoma City bombing. So I think uh, the evidentiary tributaries running uh, in the direction of Germany in this case also uh, bear scrutiny. Bear in mind that there are some strong historical links between Middle Eastern elements and uh, elements of the Third Reich, both in its above ground and below-ground uh, phase. So the German connections, the Philippine arrest, which has had very little publicity, are also interesting investigative elements. So a lot of this will be laid out. I realize I'm skipping around a little bit. These are not the, the ideal conditions for uh, broadcasting under. It's also not the ideal time for me. But uh, with an awful lot of information coming down the pike and... Uh, Frankly, I, I just have been really very disturbed by what I've heard all the way around. Maybe, I guess it was predictable that this event would be oversimplified, but it's it's either uh, let's go whoop them uh, them camel jockeys, or else it's you know oh U.S. imperialism has come home to roost, or else you know it's uh, oh the government did it, you know oh, this is just more of the same. I really haven't heard much adequate discussion about what's going on. This is not to say that I don't think uh, elements. Uh, associated with the Bush administration are complicit in this. I suspect that's the case. But rather than pulling the strings directly, I suspect they simply allowed something to go forward. Uh, the last element that I that I would cite for the presentation tonight, and that is a, a recent and very important book 
called Dreamer of the Day, Francis Parker Yockey in the Post-War Fascist International by Kevin Coogan. It's one of the best books ever written about fascism. I've interviewed Kevin a number of different times. There are a couple of other, a couple of other interviews that I've recorded that are coming down the pike. Uh, one of the things that Kevin talks about in that book is the fascist philosophy of Francis Parker Yockey and Yockeyism which is a, a type of fascism that, among other things, advocated a, an alliance between European countries, possibly even the Soviet Union, against the United States, who was sort of seen by Yaki and the elements around him as the great Satan. And in particular, Yaki was hoping to see an, a, a coalition of third world peoples, including and especially people in the Middle East, to unite against and destroy uh, not only Israel, but the United States, and uh, what he saw as world Jewry uh, in, in the classic Nazi viewpoint, uh, the United States was seen as being a Jewish-controlled state uh, run by the international Jewish conspiracy, etc., etc., etc. And uh, the Yaki elements actually advocated an alliance between fascist elements, including uh, residual elements of the Third Reich and the Underground Reich, and uh, some of these uh, anti-American and anti-British, particularly anti-American elements, within the third world in general and the Middle East in particular. So I think in terms of gaining some background on some of the, the political complexities uh, that I think need to be gauged in connection with this event, one could do no better than the, uh, the Kevin Coogan book. Again, Dreamer of the Day, Francis Parker Yaki and the Post-War Fascist International, soft-cover edition, Autonomedia, and copyright 1999. This is not to say that uh, there's necessarily any hard information in that book about this this event. Of course, the book was published two years ago. But in terms of understanding some of the things, the, 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 the possibilities that I'm talking about here, uh, a coalition between Middle Eastern and uh, Third Reich elements or Middle Eastern and contemporary fascist elements, and how uh, what is essentially a fascist, uh, and, and extreme right-wing entity could come to be using uh, third-world, uh, well, I wouldn't hesitate to call them nationalist or anti-imperialist forces, but third-world forces who would tend to be identified in most people's minds with either the left or certainly with, with an anti-imperialist cause. In terms of understanding those possibilities, I think the Kevin Coogan book, uh, is a very, very, it's a very important work in general, but it's one of the best books uh, written about fascism in recent memory. Bear in mind, too, something people are going to be hearing in, for the record, 308, which will be airing uh, a little later, I guess, I guess once I've finished Yaki to Yaki and Heroy. Uh, this past spring, the Bush administration made a $43 million payoff to the Taliban. I wonder about that, and I wonder whether, in effect, that was... That was a payoff saying, yeah, thanks a lot, guys. You know, you helped out with the coal, and uh, that helped get me in office. So uh, yeah, here's $43 million for you guys to play with. It's not a lot of money in terms of fault by foreign aid standards, but in an impoverished country, $43 million can go a long way. Certainly in light of uh, the uh, status of the status of Osama bin Laden as uh, this, this uh, heinous international figure, I think that the payment of $43 million by the Bush administration to the Taliban is a very interesting uh, 
an interesting uh, thing for George Bush to do and an interesting political statement for him to make. But as I guess in summation, Roy, this, this is a, a more complex event than people are likely to be uh, told about. And I hope, uh, perhaps, and granted, this is uh, it's late, I'm tired, uh, I got a lot of irons in the fire. Now, now things have quieted down, but the, the office here at the station has been... Uh, it was very hectic, and they're in the beginning of the talk. So I hope that uh, the talk hasn't been too rambling or the presentation no, uh, no, too, no, too incoherent. Well, it's tough to say, tough to tell how you uh, how you sound to others, you know. And I it just uh, this has been a really uh, upsetting event to me personally. I mean, it just just uh, as I said last week, I don't watch a lot of TV. And watching the round-the-clock coverage the first couple of days, just seeing the plane slamming into the World Trade Center over and over, I mean, that's just a very, very disturbing and enduring image. And uh, I just have been very, very angered at a lot of the coverage I've heard, which is it just, again, it's been inadequate. It's either been, you know, wacko conspiracy people saying, oh, it's the government, they know it's, you know, blah, 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 the Illuminati, whoever, uh, or else it's, you know, the... the, the cloying leftist anti-American you know oh this is American imperialism coming home to roost and no now 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 the Americans would know how the Iraqis stand I've heard a lot of crap like that too Uh, or else it's been you know well we gotta get them you know it's been the George Bush cowboy Texas Rangers stuff well dead or alive Bin Laden we're gonna go get them and uh, and it's just none none of the approaches uh, is adequate in my opinion Okay, well, Dave, thanks for staying up to talk with us. Yep. Uh, alrighty, well, I, uh, again... I should say, my, my favorite response from a national pundit was that we should go bomb Iraq. And I was thinking, when did we stop? And that concludes For the Record Program number 1320, The Plus of Change. This was primarily a broadcast that was recorded via telephone hookup on KPFK in Los Angeles on the Royal Hollywood Show on September 20th of 2001. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.